journey since January, where we've been diving into the book of 2 Corinthians, gaining a sense of understanding as to this church that has begun, begun because Paul went to Corinth to preach the gospel. Paul went there to establish the church because it was an important community. It was a community that connected the east and the west. Everyone would go through Corinth. There was a a uh, small piece of land that separated two uh, bays, and it was those ports that the people would come, and that six kilometers often, they would uh, shift their cargo uh, from one port to the other, versus going all the way around the peninsula, which was about a 200-kilometer journey. It was a community that collected people of all walks of life, um, all nationalities, of various uh, religious backgrounds, and it was a community uh, that um, Christ entered into and began to, in many ways, turn upside down. This new church of believers had many questions. They struggled to walk in step with Jesus, as any new church would, and any church for that matter. And Paul writes to them, and he tries to help them. He tries to, uh, you know, direct them, tries to get them on the right track. It's quite a journey for Paul and the church, because after he's established a church, he, he needs to correct them. And that's difficult. It's difficult to say to believers, hey, you're off track. You need to change your course. There's a requirement when you speak those kinds of difficult things, hard things to hear. There's a requirement, and the requirement is a relational equity, a willingness to hear hard things, and not just to hear them, but to try to apply them, to take them to heart and to, and to do it. And as we kind of have seen over the last three or four months, that, that Paul's letter is written with a passion to see the church succeed, to see Christ lifted high. That in the midst of weakness, his grace is sufficient. Paul tries to help the church become all that Christ desires it to become. After the first letter he writes, 1 Corinthians, he visits, and he referenced that visit as a painful visit, difficult. Difficult because... There's misunderstandings, and he's correcting them. From that, he hears that, yes, there's been some repentance, but, but in addition, there's continued misdirection. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians, and again, he corrects them. Let's take a moment before we go much further, and let's review what we've learned so far. I have a video that's been put out by... Um, the Bible Project, and I would encourage you to go and check the website out. There they, they give overviews of books that are helpful and help us to understand how the book comes together, what's the intent and purpose, and what's the flow. Hopefully, if you've been here since January, this, this will be a bit of a review, a reminder. Uh, oh yeah, that's right, we talked about that. And then we will... Uh, dive into the latter part of the portion of Scripture. Let's see this video. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 
Even though it's called 2nd or 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to correct these problems. And it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit. And after that, he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most, but not all, of the Corinthians realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul. They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter's been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. Let's dive in and you'll see how it all works. So Paul opens up by thanking the God of all mercy and comfort who brought peace and encouragement to him and the Corinthians during this time of division and dispute. He acknowledges that things have been tense since this painful visit, and he makes clear he's forgiven them, he wants an open and honest relationship. But why had they rejected Paul in the first place? Well, we discover later in this letter that the Corinthians had disregarded Paul as a leader. He was poor, he earned a meager living through manual labor, he was under constant persecution and suffering, he was often homeless, and to top it off, he wasn't a very impressive public speaker. And so once the Corinthians were exposed to other, more wealthy, impressive Christian leaders, they started to think less of Paul, they were actually ashamed of him. So Paul responds first by showing that their elevation of these leaders simply because of their wealth and eloquence is a betrayal of Jesus. It shows a totally distorted value system. True Christian leadership, Paul says, is not about status or self-promotion. Paul depicts himself and the other apostles as captive slaves to King Jesus, who's leading them on a procession of triumph. Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but rather to point people to the one who is. Jesus. He then alludes to the recent demand of the Corinthians that he provide some letters of recommendation to prove his authority and credentials. And this is ridiculous to Paul. Their church wouldn't even exist if he hadn't started it. And so he says they are his proof of genuine leadership. They are his letter of recommendation. He cleverly quotes from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, saying that God's spirit has written his letter of recommendation on their hearts as his new covenant people. The Corinthians shouldn't need any more proof than that. Now, the mention of the new covenant, it leads Paul into a long comparison between the old covenant between God and Israel that was mediated by Moses and the new covenant between God and the Corinthians mediated by Jesus and the Spirit. The old covenant made at Mount Sinai, it was truly glorious. It made Moses himself shine with God's glory, but that glory eventually faded. Not to mention the fact that the laws of that covenant were ineffective at truly transforming Israel. But the new covenant, by comparison, is even more glorious because the resurrected Jesus is the very glory of God and he lives on forever. And it's his spirit that's now transforming people to become more faithful, just like Jesus himself. Now, this all sounds amazing. I mean, who doesn't want to share in God's own glory? But Paul goes on to show 
how the paradox of the cross turns upside down the Corinthians' ideas of glory and success. After all, Jesus' glorious exaltation as king took place through his suffering, execution, and death. On the cross, Jesus revealed God's salvation. He died for the sins of the world to reconcile people to God. But the cross does even more. It reveals God's character. He's a being of utter self-giving, suffering love that seeks the well-being of others. The cross also reveals a new cruciform way of life. And Paul's goal is that his life and ministry imitates the cross. So although his apostolic career has been marked by humility, suffering, by poverty, it was all to serve the Corinthians. And so when they disapprove of Paul's poverty and suffering, they disapprove of Jesus too. Paul's way of life and leadership is actually the proof that he authentically represents the crucified and risen Jesus. Paul really wants to reconcile with the Corinthians, but he won't let things lie until they've been transformed and embrace this upside-down paradox of the cross. After this passionate appeal, Paul moves on to address the topic of forgotten generosity. So the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, they had fallen into poverty due to a famine. And Paul was raising money among the new churches that he started, full of mostly non-Jews. They would all send a relief gift as a symbol of their unity in the Messiah, Jesus. And so many of his churches, they were thrilled to give. But the Corinthians, in the midst of all this conflict with Paul, hadn't saved up for the gift. And for Paul, this isn't just about money. It's another sign that the Corinthians have not been transformed by the gospel about Jesus, which at its heart is a story of generosity. Paul says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He's telling the story of the gospel through financial metaphors. Jesus gave up his glorious honor, or wealth, and he lowered himself to die like a poor slave, so that other people who are impoverished through sin and death can be exalted and become wealthy through the riches of God's grace. To be a Christian is to let this story sink deep into your mind and heart, letting it transform you into someone who's more generous, more willing to share your life and resources to help others. In the final section of the letter, Paul focuses on the main source of his conflict with the Corinthians, that group of impressive leaders that he sarcastically calls super apostles. So they came to Corinth promoting themselves and bad-mouthing Paul as a poor, unsuccessful leader. And at the risk of sounding self-promoting, Paul says, do these guys really want to compare credentials? He can totally take them on. Are they Jewish Bible experts? Well, so is Paul. He was a Pharisee, for goodness sakes. He has the whole Bible memorized. Do they want to brag about their superior knowledge of Jesus? Paul has actually seen and hung out with the risen Jesus. He's actually had visions of Jesus' heavenly throne room. But more importantly, Paul has given his entire life to the mission of Jesus. He sacrificed comfort and stability, and he never asked the Corinthians for money. Unlike the super apostles who charged a lot, Paul earned his own living. But, Paul says, he refuses to brag about these accomplishments because these aren't the things that really matter as a Christian. Instead, what he'll brag about is how flawed and how weak he is because it's in those inadequacies that he discovers the love and mercy of Jesus. Or as Jesus once told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect through weakness. 
Paul concludes the letter with a sober warning to the Corinthians. They need to check themselves. Their contempt for Paul, his way of life, their love for these super apostles, it all shows that they don't grasp who Jesus is on a fundamental level. They're not living like transformed followers of Jesus, and so he invites them once again to humble themselves before the love of Jesus. 2 Corinthians gives us a really unique window into the life of Paul and the paradox set before us by the cross of Jesus. The cross challenges our values, our ways of seeing the world. We value success, education, wealth, but God values humility and weakness because his love and power were made known through the suffering, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross also unleashes the transforming power and presence of the Spirit to empower Jesus' followers to take up his cruciform way of life and make it their own. And that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. That's helpful, is it not? I'd encourage you to check out the webpage, uh, uh, The Bible Project, and there you will find many of these uh, descriptors of uh, portions of the scripture to help see the old view. The only thing that is maybe a little bit discouraging is we've been working on this for four months and they did it in about six minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what on earth have you been talking about, Pastor Scott? Well, there we are. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. As you can see through uh, the narrative here that we just heard, there's much tension. And Paul's about to wrap up his letter, and he wants to address an important issue in the life of the church and in the life of the believers, and one that I would also like us to address here today. You see, at the core, Paul is trying to direct them. Why? Because he loves them. He's passionate about them. This direction that he's giving to them is and can be misunderstood. In light of that, hear from God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Verse 5, starting, read through to the end of the chapter. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this is about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, Though we may see, I'm sorry, though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, for only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, Rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's timely and perfect. I pray that over the next few brief moments that you would speak and that we would hear. And Lord, that we wouldn't just seek to hear what you have to say, but we would, through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and through the fellowship of your spirit, seek to apply it to our lives. Truly, that we would seek to submit and yield to your direction. For you are a good, good God. And you desire what's best for us. Even when it's difficult and hard. 
In Jesus' name, amen. See, Paul has addressed many issues through the book of 2 Corinthians. We've had them outlined uh, to us about who Jesus Christ is, what his purpose is, what he desires to accomplish in and through us. There's all kinds of misunderstandings about the gospel. People think that the gospel is about, you know, a position, a status. It's about uh, getting what they want. It's about directing God and God kind of being the servant to those who've received what he's done on the cross. And Paul is quick to say, that is not the gospel. No, the gospel is simply this, that God loved us in our brokenness and that he died on the cross for us, that he, he, he paid in full for all our sin. And he bids us by grace to receive the forgiveness that he extends to us. And it's not just forgiveness, friends. It's reconciliation between us and God. That's the gospel. And forgiveness, friends, is not easy. Forgiveness, friends, is is something that requires a payment. See, sometimes we think that forgiveness is, is, is simply just sweeping something under the rug. We think that forgiveness requires no payment. But no, there is a consequence to sin. There is. When we sin one between each other, when we say a hurtful word, when we, when we do something that's offensive to another person, there's a consequence. Sometimes it's visible, and sometimes it's internally. There's a consequence. And forgiveness comes when we, when we offer to the other person uh, a forgiveness, when we offer grace and mercy to the other person. Essentially what we're saying is, I'll pay for what you've done. I'll pay for what you've done. I will bear the consequences of your actions. That's forgiveness. And in essence, what Paul is saying through the book of Corinthians is that Jesus Christ has paid for our sin. But forgiveness doesn't equal reconciliation. You see, forgiveness can happen one-sided, and it must happen. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted what he's done on the cross, make no mistake, we need to walk in forgiveness. It's not an option. Jesus says when he uh, uh, teaches his disciples how to pray, that we are to forgive those who've sinned against us just as we've been forgiven. God, it's not an option. And so I need to forgive those who sin or who've offended me. It's not an option. And forgiveness doesn't require two people. No, it's an act of the will. It's a decision that I make. Either I will choose to walk in forgiveness, I will choose to bear the brunt of the consequences of what has been done against me and extend forgiveness, or I will choose to walk in bitterness, strife, self-righteousness. See, as Paul comes to the end of this, he's worried not just about forgiveness, or he's not just worried, he's not concerned just about forgiveness. More than that, he's concerned about restoration. Twice as he wraps up the letter, he points to this reality of uh, restoration. Look what he says in verse 8 of chapter 13. He says, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only the truth. In other words, we must walk in the truth of Jesus Christ. This is following what he, he, he says to the church of Corinth. Listen, examine yourselves. Make sure you're of the faith. Make sure that you're walking in step with the faith of Jesus Christ. There's issues here. Paul has addressed some difficult things. He's said some hard things. He's been misunderstood, misinterpreted, maligned, and cast aside as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? 
Why? Because he says hard things. Because he loves them. At the core of Paul's ministry is a love and a passion for the people. And yet they struggle with the truth that he's declared. He speaks the truth to them in the hopes that they would be set free. Free from sin. Free from impressing others. Free to only serve God. To walk in peace and joy. No, Paul walks in the truth. He walks in the truth. He declares the truth. And now he says to them, listen, we have to be about the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. In other words, what Paul is saying is, listen, I understand the tension that's been created through the ministry that I've had among you. My first letter, my first visit, I mean my second visit. I understand that I've created friction in the midst of community. I've created friction between myself and you. There's friction here. And so Paul understands that the truth has brought friction. It's brought challenges to relationships. It's brought hurt one way and another. And his prayer is that there would be restoration, reconciliation among the people. He understands the tension and the challenges that he's addressed. You know, friends, we read the book of Corinthians, and at arm's length, we can kind of keep ourselves safe. We can say to ourselves, well, he's writing to the church of Corinth, not so much to us, but friends, we err when we do that. No, this is a real letter to real people. Paul loves them, and so he writes them. These are hard words, words that would be difficult to hear, difficult to take. And Paul's hoping, he's praying, that the truth brings freedom and restoration. In verse 11 of chapter 13, he he continues on in this theme, understanding the tension that he's brought Finally, brothers, rejoice. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because that is where there is strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Finally, brothers, rejoice. In the midst of great friction, in the midst of great challenges, uh, aim for restoration. Aim for reconciliation. Comfort one another. There's a practical working out here. It's it's a coming alongside of, comfort one another. Don't avoid each other in the midst of conflict, in the midst of challenges. Comfort one another. It's very practical as Paul is wrapping up his letter. He knows he's created a firestorm here by addressing these issues, by, by, by telling the truth. He knows there's challenges. Friends, we don't like these kinds of challenges. No, they do not tickle our ears. They're uncomfortable. They're difficult. And sometimes we misunderstand the intent. The intent of the correction, the direction. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Listen, brothers. Listen, brothers. Finally, rejoice. Find strength in the joy of the Lord. Don't be a people pleaser. Aim for restoration, reconciliation. See, that takes two people. Forgiveness is one. 
No, we extend forgiveness to those around us. But reconciliation, that takes two. Restoration, that takes two. It takes comforting of each other. Agree with one another. In other words, humble yourself. In humility, come together. Be willing to look at yourself as well as the other offending party. And work to reconciliation and restoration. Live in peace. Live in peace with one another. Don't sweep things under the rug. Paul, Paul doesn't do that, no. Instead, he goes headlong in. And even after he writes this letter, we, we see that he's going to go and visit them once again. No, Paul refuses to avoid. Paul refuses to stay away. No, his intent, as he encourages the church of Corinth, is that of reconciliation, restoration. True community. Live in peace, he says, with one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's more cultural. All the saints greet you. Friends, this day, as we consider the book of 2 Corinthians in its totality, but also as Paul wraps it up, let me ask you some questions. How are you doing one with each other? How are you doing? Now, is there friction, avoidance? Is there offense and hurt? Well, the gospel speaks into that. You see, Jesus Christ has come not only to forgive, but to reconcile us between us and God. But more than that, friends, more than that, he he has come to bring salvation not only to us, but to bring unity in the midst of the body of Christ. Friends, sometimes, sometimes it's messy, it's hard, and people get hurt. Forgiveness is the obligation of those who've been offended. It's not sweeping it under a rug or pretending it didn't happen. No, it's owning the pain, the consequences. It's acknowledging that you will pay. That you will pay for the words that were said. It doesn't require two. No, it requires one. But reconciliation requires two. It does. It requires humility to come together, a willingness to listen and be heard, and a willingness to speak, to offer grace one to each other, to own what we've done wrong, and to walk together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. I love the heart of Paul in all of this, for he speaks the truth, knowing the relational tension that it will create but he also recognizes the end game the end goal that the relationships will be far more authentic that the relationships will be far more profound and deep and real and that the end goal it's, it's restoration and unity and peace and grace, that the God of love and peace will be with you. Now greet one another with a holy kiss. Be glad to see each other as all the saints who greet you.
Friends, let's stand together. There's a good word here for us this day, here in 2 Corinthians. It's important that we examine our relationships with one another. It's important that we consider where there's friction and that we seek, seek to restore. Restore any misunderstandings. Restore any hurts. Restore the relationship to love one another, to walk in peace with one another, to allow God to to do his work in and through us. There's a word for you and there's a word for me. It's not an easy word, but it's a good word, a hard word, and it requires action. Friends, is there any friction in your relationships with one another? If there is, seek to make it right. As much as is possible, be at peace with one another. Do your part. You can't do their part, but you can do your part. And walk in the freedom, the freedom of the truth and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, you know. You know where we stand. And you know the challenges we have. We are so grateful for Jesus Christ, the Lord who paid the price for all our sins, who died on the cross and bore death for us, that we may be reconciled with you. Oh, God of grace and mercy, we are so grateful. May we extend and follow the example of Christ, one with each other, that we too may live in peace May we not hide the hard things that need to be said, avoiding conflict and friction, but may we, may we walk in humility and gentleness, in kindness and in grace and mercy, one with each other, extending true love and patience. May it be so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.